Good morning. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he was born witness to the truth. Not that, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and that the Father who sent me has, him, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom has sent whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one whom, whom accuses you, Moses, on whom you have sent your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Good morning. Happy winter. Name it and claim it. I want you to imagine yourself on trial for something extremely significant. So draw draw that to mind. You're on trial. You're you're in a courtroom. Something for something very significant. You're innocent, but the charges against you are as serious as they come. If found guilty, you'll likely get decades in prison or worse. Now imagine that the verdict, when it is rendered, depends entirely upon your witnesses, quality and believability of those willing to testify on your behalf. You're on trial, serious, a lot's at stake, and it all comes down to the people who are willing to testify to your innocence. And so here's, here's the question. Who would you want to speak for you? Of everyone? Anyone in the entire world, who do you think would be the most helpful person to call? Of course, on one hand, it depends on what the charges are, and but who would it who would it be? Who who can you think of that maybe would be the would it be the Pope, maybe? That'd be that'd be kind of a big deal, I guess. The president, Supreme Court justice, maybe. Well, in some ways, that's what we're dealing with in this passage. There's a type of trial going on in John chapter 5, and we're meant to notice the several stages of it. We've been through the first three, and today is the fourth. In the first stage, Jesus committed the crime of miraculously healing a paralyzed man. In the second stage, Jesus was brought to trial. He was accused by the Jews of breaking the Sabbath by healing on it and encouraging someone else to break it by taking up his mat and walking. 
and along with those things of claiming to be equal with God, all serious charges, with serious penalties if they're right and Jesus is wrong. In the third stage, which was last Sunday, last Sunday's sermon, Jesus took the stand himself, maybe you remember, as a means of clearing up the misconceptions or declaring his innocence and what's underneath his innocence. Jesus explained that they misjudged his words and his actions, that is, his accusers, the ones taking him to trial, because they misjudged his nature. As a means of explaining that, he gave them 11 aspects of who he was that gave rise to and legitimacy to the things he said and did. We've covered all that in John 5. Now as we come to the close of this chapter and the final stage of the trial, Jesus clarified himself and then called his witnesses to testify on his behalf. Again then, first, Jesus reiterated his main claim, the very reason he was on trial. Namely, and here's what it is, you do well to have this playing through your mind throughout the sermon, that he did that, that he did and said, Jesus did and said only and only what and everything that the Father gave him to do and to say. So they were accusing him of doing all these things that were sinful and wrong and blasphemous. And Jesus' main claim is that everything I do and say is only that, only what and everything that the Father has given me. And to prove that, as evidence for that, Jesus offered four different witnesses to back this up. John the Baptist, his own miraculous works, God the Father, and the scriptures, especially those written by Moses. Despite all of that, despite the impeccable credentials and consistent testimony of the witnesses, the Jews still refused to believe Jesus for four reasons that the text tells us. They lacked genuine knowledge of the scriptures. They lacked the love of God. They were hypocrites and they loved their own glory. The main point of all of this is that while Jesus is fully trustworthy, with the most credible witnesses attesting to that, the Jews still would not believe them because such is the nature of the hardness of a heart, of of a sinful heart. The main takeaways for us are these. Number one is to believe the witnesses, to believe Jesus' claims in the witnesses that testify on his behalf, and secondly, to humbly recognize that the same temptations away from that that were in the Jews in this passage are in us today. So believe the witness, witnesses. Find the ways in which you today are refusing to believe those that Jesus called to testify on his behalf. And secondly, look for some of the same seeds in you that led away from believing these witnesses as is the case in our passage. Let's pray that God would grant these things and more. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that is easy and joyful and yet challenging and convicting to preach. It's fairly easy to understand. It's fairly easy to structure. It's fairly easy to see, at least conceptually, what we ought to do in response to this. And so we pray now that your Holy Spirit would would do what is so plain in the text would do the the work that we so desperately need. 
what we're meant to do in response to this is right there for us to see and grab. But how we go about that is dependent upon your grace and mercy coming upon us. So by your spirit, let us see what the Jews missed. And by your spirit, let us resist the same temptations that they faced to steer us away from this. And by your spirit, empower us to walk as we are meant to walk in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus makes many claims throughout John chapter 5, and of course throughout the first five chapters, and many more throughout the Gospel of John. In some ways, though, they are all summed up in verse 30. I think it's up here, right? In some ways, they're all summed up in verse 30. I can and and do do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him, Father in heaven, who sent me. When agreeing to become incarnate, Jesus agreed to depend entirely upon the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. The main implication of that in the context of our passage for this morning is that everything Jesus said and did on earth, everything that made the Jews so angry and accusative, everything that had led him to this trial in chapter 5 was the exact will of God. <laughs> Jesus was completely surrendered to the will of God in a way that no man had ever been since, or no man had ever been to that point, and no man has ever been since. Jesus' main point then was that to accuse him of acting wrongly, which the Jews were doing, was to accuse God the Father of acting wrongly. A preposterous claim, of course. And so the problem, once again, was that the Jews had recreated so much of what God had said of himself and what he had said about them and called them to in their own wisdom and desires. Let me say that again, Grace. Look for this in yourself. It's there. It's in me. And we need to be aware of this so that we can fight against this. But the problem was that the Jews had recreated much of what God had said of himself and called them to according to their own wisdom and desires. God's word was plain. He gave it to them, and yet they they twisted it and added on to it and remodeled it over and over again to the point that the true version of all of this was no longer even recognizable to them. And we know that because it was standing in front of them. It's kind of like, again, my, my analogies seem to be getting worse, but I, I couldn't get this one out of my head. It's kind of like those celebrities that have had so, so many practic, or so many cosmetic procedures over the years, futilely chasing youth that if all you saw was a picture of them today, you wouldn't recognize what they looked like when they first became a celebrity. It's just unrecognizable. Therefore, when Jesus came, perfectly imaging and obeying God's commands, instead of repenting and worshiping and recognizing that finally the real thing was in front of them, they persecuted him and reviled him. Well, part of Jesus' mission, Grace, on earth, was to perfectly reveal and model the true nature of God and his word and his will. And in so doing, Jesus aimed to correct and atone for centuries of the disfigurement and rebellion of the people of God. 
both for the sake of his accusers then and for our sake today, Jesus continued to stack up more and more and more evidence that the things he said were of God, that he was of God, that he was God, the long-awaited Messiah. He, he continued to stack up more and more evidence to prove that he really was of God. In this latest round, Jesus added to all that he'd already done four impeccable witnesses, any one of which would have been entirely sufficient. His word alone was entirely sufficient, but added to that were four witnesses altogether providing the strongest evidence ever presented. So before we come to the witnesses and the bulk of the sermon, let me ask you two questions. First, for those of you who are still unsure of whether or not to trust in Jesus and his claims, some of you here, I'm sure, for those of you who are still not sure whether to trust in Jesus, or maybe for others, if you're not yet sure of whether you should fully trust in Jesus, you're, you're almost there, but you're, you're holding back some at least. Let me ask you this question. Who would need to testify and what would they need to say for you to, to believe? Who would need to stand before you and, and what would they need to say for you to truly and fully trust in Jesus? Who would be the perfect witness in your eyes? Who would need to attest to the authenticity of Jesus' claims for you to fully surrender to him? If your answer is not on the list of the witnesses about to be called, your list is bad. But who would it take? What would it take for you to truly believe? If you have eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear, you're about to get a glimpse of that. Here's the second question probably for more of you. How are you guarding against falling into the same deadly pit that the Jews in this passage had fallen into? The pit of adding to or taking away from the word and will of God, the life that he has called you to. How have you stacked things on or taken things away from it that has confused and distorted your vision of things such that the real version is foreign to you? How are you intentionally seeking to live an authentic Christian life as revealed to you by God and imaged perfectly and carried out perfectly in the person of Jesus instead of the man-made counterfeit versions that John prayed against in his exhortation? These are two critical questions we all need to settle on if we're going to gain all that we're meant to from this passage and these witnesses. Well, to be sure then, Jesus' claim was significant. It was the biggest thing that anyone has ever claimed about themselves in the history of mankind. Fully aware of this, Jesus declared, look at verse 31, if I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. Now that, of course, didn't mean that Jesus' words might, he might have been lying or that his words were insufficient all by themselves. It did mean, however, that by law and by nature, the Jews would not have accepted Jesus' testimony if he had no witnesses. And more significantly still, it meant that embedded in Jesus' very claim was the claim to have witnesses to back up his claim. In other words, Jesus was saying, in effect, I know that there's no way you will accept my claims apart from the testimony of others. And in some ways, you shouldn't. Especially because part of my claim is to have witnesses, eternal, divine, inspired, miraculous, unprecedented witnesses. 
Jesus' claim was indeed significant, but I think, as you're about to see, his witnesses were no less significant. And with that, let's call the first one to the stand. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. With those words, Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. He was the first prophet in Israel in 400 years and the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus said in Matthew 11. It's not a bad start for your witness list. The first and prophet in 400 years and the greatest man who's ever lived. I, I don't know if someone of that caliber would testify on my behalf for anything, but here he is. Indeed, for a time, the Jews even agreed with Jesus about these things. When John first came onto the scene, he really did inspire many. Jesus said he was a burning and shining lamp that caused many to rejoice for a while in his light. He broke God's centuries-long silence and promised the imminent coming of the long-expected Messiah. He, he brought the news that they were all longing to hear, and so there was excitement through him. It was clear that he was a man of God. Jesus even used that to trap them later. Why, why do you not believe John's testimony about me? And, and they were afraid because they knew the people esteemed John. And so the, John, John's testimony for a while was, it carried a lot of weight. The Jews even sought, Jesus reminds us, sought John to hear his message. That's what he says in verse 33. And, and they, many responded to it and repentance and, and then baptism. But when he finally announced, when John finally announced the arrival of the actual Messiah in the person of Jesus, everything changed. Listen to John's testimony. It's back in chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Until this point, it was great. He seemed to be a man of God. He promised the coming of the Messiah. People were coming to him and listening to him. But here's where it all changed. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Messiah that I was telling you about, the Christ that I promised was coming, this is him. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. This is John chapter 1, verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, that is, the Father in heaven, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Jews should have believed him because he bore witness to the truth, but they didn't. They turned on him to the point that he was eventually beheaded for his testimony on behalf of the truthfulness of Jesus. The first witness Jesus called was John the Baptist, and he was a good witness, promised and sent by God. Among men, he was the best witness. But he was merely a man, which is why Jesus declared, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. More and greater witnesses were to come. And that leads to the second witness. Jesus' own marvelous, miraculous works. Look at verse 36. 
But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. As great as his is, I've got greater testimony still to offer to you, skeptical, condemning Jews. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Two weeks ago, I gave you a list and we we unpacked it. I want to remind you of some of that today. Two weeks ago, we considered the miracles of Jesus and John's gospel. To this point, he had already turned water into excellent wine. He had supernaturally read the minds and hearts of men. He miraculously healed an official's son, saving him from death by merely saying that it would be so without ever touching him or coming near him. From a day's journey away, he caused a man who was paralyzed for 38 years to immediately stand up and walk. And in the coming chapters, we're about to see more of this type of testimony and witness. And he's at the beginning of six, which we'll get to next week. He'll miraculously feed 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He'll walk on water. He'll heal a man who was born blind. He'll raise another man from the dead. And he will himself rise from the dead. On top of all that, again, as you may remember at the end, John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book. No one could do those things apart from the power of God. Not even the greatest man who ever lived could provide testimony this powerful. More than even the greatest man who ever lived then, Jesus' miraculous works testify to the truthfulness of his claim to do nothing outside of the will of God. Well, where do you go from there? Your first witness is the greatest man who ever lived, and the second are miraculous deeds that no one but God alone can do. I'll tell you where you go. You go to God the Father himself. Look at 37. And the Father who sent me, He himself has borne witness about me. Well, John's gospel records neither of these events. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record two explicit declarations from God the Father concerning the legitimacy of Jesus, his very son. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we read this in Matthew. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And here's the key. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John doesn't record these words, even though, as I just read a few minutes ago, he alludes to them. In a similar fashion, in Matthew 17, we read of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Grace, don't miss the profound reality that both at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry on earth, God audibly spoke on his behalf, audibly testified to the fact that Jesus was his son and that Jesus' words and action and person were pleasing to him. How's that for a credible witness? 
If someone charged you with stealing from the President of the United States, who would provide a more compelling argument on your behalf than the President of the United States? Again, imagine that's what you're on trial for that I asked you to consider at the beginning. The charges have been leveled. Things are looking rough for you. The prosecution is zealous and the circumstantial evidence against you is stacking up. And then the president himself walks in and under oath testifies that it was definitely not you that stole from him. What person in the right mind would still believe you to be guilty? Case closed, right? Well, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was charged with blaspheming God, but God testified that he was pleased with Jesus more than once. Well, after that, what possible need would there be for a fourth witness? <laughs> Case is already closed, right? The very one that, you, that he was accused of sinning against testified on his behalf that not only did he not sin against me, he's from me and My pleasure is on him. What need would there be for a fourth witness? The issue is whether or not the things Jesus said and did were the will of God. God testified that they were. What more could be said that would add to that? And the answer is the scriptures. Get this. This is a big deal. The scriptures themselves are nothing nothing more or less than the words of God. In that sense, to say that the scriptures testify on Jesus' behalf is simply another way of saying that God the Father testifies on his behalf, and we already said that. But while John's point in verse 37 was that the Father audibly spoke for Jesus, the point here is that God had done so for millennia. From the very first pages of scripture, God testified about the coming work and message and person of Jesus. That's awesome, Grace. We we considered this to some degree before, but that's what he means in verse 39. He he says, you search, Jews. Those of you accusing me right now, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believe Moses, all the way to 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what Moses said about Jesus. Genesis 49.10, Numbers 24.17, Deuteronomy 18.15, Job 33.23, 1 Samuel 2.10, 2 Samuel 7.12, Psalm 2.7, Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is, is of old from the ancient of days. Isaiah 7, 14, 43, 50, 1 through 12. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Behold, your king is coming to you. The righteous, righteous and having salvation is he. Zechariah twelve ten. Malachi 3, 1. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the scriptures, the very words of the Father, the very words that the Jews studied so diligently, the very words they believed gave them life and condemned Jesus, actually testified about Jesus. And Jesus offers them as a witness for him, century upon century upon century. And yet instead of finding the life they promised in Jesus, the scriptures, 
The Jews misread them and refused to come to him, the very one they spoke of. Grace, John the Baptist testified on Jesus' behalf. Jesus' miracles gave testimony to the fact that he was from God. God himself testified for Jesus while he was on earth. And the scriptures, too, over thousands of years, authenticate Jesus' claim to do nothing other than and only the will of God. Whatever doubts you have, consider them in the light of these witnesses. There are no greater witnesses and there is no greater testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I say these things that you might believe and have life. Learn from the mistakes of the Jews and the heart behind the rejection of Jesus that you might turn to him in faith. It is that that I want to turn now very briefly. It's a simple passage, a few sentences and a simple passage on each of the reasons the Jews rejected this in spite of the testimony of these witnesses. They still refused to believe in Jesus, and therefore they still refused to receive the salvation of God in Jesus. Well, to help them understand, Jesus explained to them, here's, here's the problem, here's what you're getting wrong. And to help us right now, Look for hints, or I hope not, large doses of these things in us. Jesus named four specific reasons why those accusing Jesus refused to accept Jesus. And the first is this. They lacked genuine knowledge of the scriptures. They misread their Bibles, Grace. While they understood themselves to be experts in the law and fervent keepers of it, they were neither. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. How do I know that? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And then 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there is one who will, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But you, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Grace, may this stir in us humility of the highest order. Humility recognizes the ease. Test yourself for this. Humility recognizes the ease with which our hearts wander into pride. It's so easy for us, even those of us hoping in Jesus, it is so easy for our hearts to wander off into pride, into selfishness, to want to read the Bible to say what we want it to say. It's so easy to miss this. Humility recognizes the ease with which our minds settle too early or too late on what God has said, and with which our actions take a form of obedience. It's so easy for our actions to take a form of obedience, but miss the very spirit of the commands of God. Learn humility from this tragedy of the Jews, and then respond by reading your Bibles, Grace, be, we need to be people of the Word more consistently, digging in more thoughtfully and studiously and meditatively and prayerfully. 
We need to read our Bibles with the help of good resources, reading with the help of other people, and reading it in light of history. Hear this. Genuine knowledge of the Scriptures, and therefore to truly hear the testimony that they give concerning the Son of God doesn't come from reading your Bibles alone a few times a year, half-engaged, and being unaware of how the church has understood it for centuries. It doesn't come from that. So to truly and fully trust in Jesus and follow Jesus, we need to understand how God has revealed him to us in his word. Failure to do so always, always, always ends up like the Jews in some form of misbelief, unbelief, or unbelieving belief. Well, the second characteristic of the Jews that kept them from receiving the testimony of Jesus in spite of the insurmountable evidence was the lack of love of God within them, 42. But I know you do not have the love of God within you. We love others, we love God, and we only love others and love God when the love of God is in us. John would write that later in a letter. If there is a message the world needs to hear today, it is this. Love is not something that we can either define or conjure ourselves. If you're into taking notes, write that down. Love is not something that we can either define or conjure ourselves. Love is not love. God is love, and all true love comes from him. There is no such thing as atheistic or self-generated love. The Jews missed this, and so they missed the truthfulness of the testimony of Jesus and his witnesses. And therefore, they missed out on the love of God and the salvation that is found only in Jesus. May we not make the same mistake. May we examine our hearts with the help of the Spirit for this. Third, the Jews had given themselves over to perpetual hypocrisy and so missed the genuine thing in Jesus. One such example is in this passage. Jesus speaks of it in terms of how they applied the plans or commands of God. They did so when it suited them and not when it didn't. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Often, they would believe the testimony of one of their inner circle, You see this throughout John's gospel without witnesses. Here in the case of Jesus, however, they would not budge in spite of a plethora of witnesses. More than a dozen times because of this, Jesus explicitly condemns them, naming them as hypocrites for reasons just like this. No one is perfect, Grace. The world loves to suggest that they shouldn't believe us, that they Our testimony can't be believed because they would call us hypocrites, but they're confusing hypocrisy with imperfection. We don't, we don't claim to be perfect. We don't claim to be doing it all right. Get get this. No one is perfect, but hypocrisy and imperfection are not the same. We're hypocrites when we say or act as if we are perfect, not when we admit that we're not. Grace, the very heart or beginning of the gospel, the very beginning of what it means to truly trust in Jesus and finding life in him is admitting that we're not perfect, is forsaking hypocrisy. The Jews had not done that, and so they missed the testimony of these witnesses. Finally, 
in spite of the overwhelming evidence for the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, who did only what the will of the Father commanded him to. The Jews refused to believe because they were consumed with love for their own glory instead of God's. This is an important sentence I'm going to give you. Ask about it in your DG. I I had a lot more written down, and I took all the commentary off. But just hear this. Like so many often do, they claimed to care about the glory of God, but it was merely a means by which they sought to be glorified themselves. Ask about that. Talk about that in your discipleship groups. I want to read that again because I think this is a really big deal. Like so many of us often do. They claim to care about the glory of God, but that was only the means by which they sought to be glorified themselves, which is why Jesus said what he said in verses 41 and 44. I do not receive glory from people. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The universal truth is that everyone is seeking glory. Everyone, every person you've ever met from the, the most ardent atheist to the strongest Christian, everyone is seeking glory. The desire and impulse to do that is hardwired into us by God. The only question is where we're seeking it and what we're seeking it for. Will we look for it in the one place that it is truly to be found, God himself, or in the countless other places that promise it but can never deliver it? Will we seek the eternal, all-consuming, all-satisfying glory of God in the God of glory or in the counterfeit versions in us and around us? The Jews missed that the, missed that the Messiah they claimed to long for was standing in front of them, speaking to them, having come to rescue them because they didn't understand the scriptures because they lacked the love of God, because they were filled with hypocrisy, and because they loved their own glory instead of God's. Again, may we consider these things and make war against them whenever they are found and wherever they are found in us. Here's my conclusion. The chapter closes, surprisingly, at least to me, without any formal verdict. The trial was here, the witnesses were called, but... The chapter closes without a formal verdict. We have to wait 13 more chapters to find it, to come to it. When we get to chapter 18, though, we'll see two remarkable things. First, we'll see that even as Jesus' witnesses continued to testify on his behalf, the animosity toward Jesus and the false charges against him only grew. These same witnesses will testify more and more and more on Jesus' behalf, but the animosity towards him will only grow more and more correspondingly. We'll see that. And second, we'll see that all of this was according to the eternal plan of God and the willing submission of Jesus for the salvation of the world. Jesus came to bear witness to the plan of the Father, to perfectly obey the Father, and then suffer, die, and rise from the dead for the glory of the Father and the everlasting good of mankind. Are you with me, Grace? Let me say that again in a different way. Jesus came as the innocent Son of God and Son of Man to endure these false charges, the ones we read about in this chapter and the rest of John's Gospel, to die at the hands of these lawless men to atone for the sins of you and me and all who will receive him. 
The sham trial that began in the beginning of John and continued throughout the entire ministry of Jesus was the very reason Jesus came to earth. It was the means by which he would rescue us from our rebellion against God and reconcile us to God. And so we should grieve. We, we should read these things, these, these stories of this hard-hearted rebellion and rejection of Jesus. So let us grieve over this mistreatment and the growing mistreatment of Jesus. Let's ex- experience holy anger at the injustice and injustices per- perpetrated on Jesus or against him. Let us be truly shocked at the hardness of hearts accusing Jesus. And then let us remember that's us. That's us. It was our sin that caused these things as much as it was theirs. And then let us turn to Jesus in humble faith, thanksgiving, worship, and obedience. He was falsely condemned in chapter 5 all the way to his death in chapter 18 and 19. He was falsely condemned so that we need not be rightly condemned. He was wrongly sentenced to death that we might graciously be justified to eternal life. 